Welcome to episode 24 of the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. After you listen to the episode, you can join the conversation. Follow us on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right, where you can get notifications of new episodes and tell us what you think. You can leave comments on our website at techdoneright.io, where you can also see our full catalog of past episodes. We're really curious about what you like and don't like about the show and what you'd like to hear us discuss in future episodes, so please let us know. Also, if you want to help other people find the show, leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts is a great way to do that. Thanks. Avdi Grimm is the creator of the Ruby Tapas screencast series, which just celebrated its fifth anniversary. Before that, he wrote a number of excellent technical books, including Exceptional Ruby and Confident Ruby. I wanted to talk to Avdi about how Ruby Tapas gets made and what helped him when he was trying to learn programming. We also talked about Avdi's rebuild of the Ruby Tapas website, which he did using off-the-shelf WordPress tools, and why not writing code is sometimes the best decision of all. I really love it when I get a chance to talk to Avdi, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here it is. Avdi, welcome. Thank you, Noel. So it's been five years for Tapas. Yeah. So what made you want to do it? What made you want to start doing that kind of screencast? Well, you know, a few different things. First off, I wanted freedom to set my own schedule. So that was sort of what set my set me on the course of creating my own content in the first place. But, you know, apart from just uh, selfish needs like that, I felt like there was a, a niche for it. I felt like there were a lot of long-form screencasts that were starting up back then or had been around for a while. But I knew that sometimes when I was watching long-form screencasts, my focus would start to wander and, I wouldn't, and I'd find myself revisiting them over and over again because of bits that I'd missed. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if there was, if there was a screencast out there that just taught you exactly one thing every time and no, no, nothing extra? And if there was something else related, then it would teach you that in a different episode. And then the Tapas concept was born. Did you feel like when you started it that you were going to be able to sustain it for five years, that you were going to still have, that you were going to have 500 different one things to teach people about Ruby? You know, I know the the usual line here is like, I never imagined that it would go this far. But honestly, yeah, I kind of did. I mean, you know, I didn't know exactly where it would go. When you kick something like, like this off, you just have to see what happens. But I did sort of plan to make it sustainable. I I made some choices to make it sustainable. I deliberately left my subject matter reasonably broad. So it was like Ruby and object-oriented design and testing and refactoring and all, you know, rails and all that stuff. You know, so I knew that I had a lot that I could talk about. And I also, you know, the choice of the very short format, the five-minute video format, it was partly because it was something that I really wanted to see out there, but it was also partly because I was kind of zeroing in on what I knew I could do and what I could sustain and what I could continue to enjoy for a long time. And, and you know, anyone who has created videos knows that it's like 10 times the time of the video. It's probably more than 10 times the length of the video itself, much more. Yeah, video content is so challenging to create. I've done a little bit. Of, I've even done some guest episodes of Ruby Tapas, and it, it's very surprisingly time-consuming. Even in the relatively, like, most of the video in a Tapas video is a screenshot. It's not like there's, like, camera edits to make, but it's still... Yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. And the majority of the time that goes into it at this point isn't even the video editing or the audio recording or any of that, it's the script writing. It's making sure that you have a good script, that the code checks out and that it makes sense and and is as clear as possible and doesn't have any fluff and making sure that the, the voice, you know, the script, you know, the narration is as clear as it can possibly be. Do you script word for word? 
Yes, I do. How good is your sense of how long a, a topic is when you come up with it? When you think of, oh, this is going to be one episode. This is going to be a five-part series. It's it's still not great. <laughs> My sense of it still is. I mean, there are some things that I know that there are just like one quick episode. But there are many times when I've set out to create a quick one-off episode about something I'm thinking about. And I've realized partway through writing the script that what I have on my hands is either I have a series on my hands or there are some tangents that I've been covering that I need to extract out into their own thing. And usually what I'll do is I'll sort of push off the original topic, push that down the road and... I'll extract out the supporting tangents that you need to know first, and then I'll make sure those go out first, and then I'll get to the original main point, and I'll, I'll reference back if I need to. What do you think, what to you makes a great tapas example? Is it, do you prefer the longer ones? Do you prefer the shorter ones? Like, what are your favorite? It's a good question. You know, honestly, I, I, my own personal preference is the shorter ones. Like, to me, the the ideal perfect episode that I'm going to create someday, I haven't yet, is going to be 30 seconds long. That's sort of the that's the ideal that I've been shooting for all this time. The truth is, a lot of the most popular episodes are some of the longer ones. You know, I say five minute episodes. A lot of them do go longer than five minutes, although I try to make sure that nothing ever hits the 10 minute mark. And some of the the longer ones on more conceptual stuff on design thinking have been some of the more popular ones over the years. Yeah, I think as a as a like as a consumer of it, they scratch different itches. Like sometimes those two minute episodes, you know, you hit the right Ruby method or little trick that I didn't even know existed, and suddenly, you know, I'm noticeably better at what I'm doing because there's this tiny little thing that I didn't know I could do. Uh, and then the longer ones give the opportunity to see something in a little bit more of a context, which I think is often missing from, you know, from short episodes. I mean, as somebody who like spends a lot of time trying to figure out how to teach developers, you have this problem where short things are really cool, but have no context. And then people don't know how to apply them. But as soon as you try to bring in enough context to have people know how to apply them, you get buried in extraneous detail. I think you do a really good job of, of, of threading that needle yeah, well, I mean, I feel like I'm pretty far at the one end of that continuum. You know, I, I sort of just rejected, for the most part, I rejected context. And I try to narrow things down as much as I can. And, you know, I try to I try to include the minimal amount of context necessary to understand what's going on. I mean, I do really hate, like, totally out of context media. Like when, when somebody just throws a bunch of jar, you know, jargon at you, you know, defining the problem, they just throw a bunch of jargon at you that they assume that you understand. Um, so I am very careful with editing to make sure that that I'm setting the stage, but I try to be just very careful with setting the minimal stage necessary, which <laughs> that reminds me of a recent episode of yours. Uh, a recent episode of, of my out. Oh. Yeah, um, I was, you know, I'm talking about like minimal stage setting and you were talking about. Uh, oh, we're talking with Betsy, yeah, with about, Betsy uh, about stage design. About sta- yeah. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that you do really well on top of it. I, I think it's really hard. I think you have a really, uh, you know, especially the shorter episodes where you have a very, very brief, minimal example that foregrounds the thing that you're trying to teach without getting buried in extraneous detail. I think you do that really well. It's very hard. Well, thank you. You know, I, I, I do, you know, currently working on the book about Rails testing and, and there's a tremendous amount of like incidental Rails detail that you almost, that you either have to bring in or, you know, people can't find. But, uh, like I think about some of the like really focused 
pieces of tapas. Uh, so how do you, how do you go about trying to create an example for a topic? Is there a recent episode that you want to talk through the process for? So I'll say this, my examples come from a few different sources. There are some that I do that are just taken directly from actual events, either some code that I worked on or some code that I worked with somebody else on. And what I'll do there is I'll go through very carefully and see how much, if, if it's something that I actually worked on, I'll go through and see how much I can strip out. Just go over the lines of code and figure out what are, you know, what's here that is useful as, as just a sort of a signpost of orientation and then strip out everything else. Yeah, you definitely use stripped down versions of the Tapas site, for example. Right. And like, you know, I've, I've got one that I did recently that was actually from a, a really old experience of mine. Episode 490 was on crash logging in Ruby. And I remember, you know, I wanted to demonstrate the idea of crash logging, but I, I didn't really want to talk about here are all the, all the different things that you might want to log in your crash logs. And so I just had a very simple example of of logging like the error in the in the current environment and you know and once you understand the trick of crash logging of how to capture an exception that's sailing up and out of the uh, out of the program on caught you can figure out for your own application what makes sense there but that was definitely a case of cutting out all the stuff that I was actually logging in production because that wasn't the point of the episode the point is how do you do this you know, but then there are other episodes where, you know, quite honestly, there's something that I want to talk about, but I, I don't have a recent example of using it. And in those cases, I'll usually try to find something that is just sort of an example that's universally identifiable. Like I've been, I've had some episodes recently that used like a shopping list example, and I, I've been using it for things like demonstrating how Ruby duplicates objects and how the duplications are are shallow and what we can do about that and how to freeze and unfreeze objects. But, you know, the shopping list example is something that's fairly concrete and you can see it. And I think most people can see it instantly understand what's going on here, instantly understand the domain. I don't have to like get you up to speed on the domain. What I really try to avoid are like, you know, foo bar kind of examples where you don't really know what kind of domain we're talking about. Or, you, you know, with a shopping list, you can sort of instantly identify, A, I, I understand this domain, and B, I see that it's sort of tangential to the actual technique being shown. It's just, it's a, it's a foil. You know, it, it's just a foil for the, the example. Right. It doesn't matter what's in the shopping cart. It can just be widgets. Right. Yeah, there's a reason why all the JavaScript frameworks use to-do lists as their uh, canonical how-to, right? It's easy and everybody understands it right off the bat. Yeah. Do you ever think about how future-proof an episode is? Like, do you worry about something that is just going to be that is going to be obliterated by a future version, or is going to be more timeless? Like, how often do people go back to early parts of the Tapas catalog? I'm very pleased to have a catalog that I think is almost entirely future-proof. Not okay. <laughs> Let me qualify that. Uh, as long as people are using Ruby, then I think it'll have some currency. Most of it. I don't often cover stuff that is very of the moment. And and part of that is just, again, my choices about what I'm going to cover, what I'm comfortable covering, what I enjoy covering. And so, like, I don't actually cover a lot of very specific Rails techniques. I kind of leave that to other screencasts. There are a lot of other folks out there doing great work for Rails specifically. And so I don't really cover a lot of that. I do a lot more general stuff. Uh, if I cover a gem... I will usually try to pick something that's been around for a while that, you know, other people are using. It's not something that just, you know, just came off the assembly line. 
occasionally I do episodes about new features in Ruby, but you know, then those are, you know, as long as the features stay in Ruby, those are still fine. I was actually just interviewing a self-taught developer who was using old Railscasts episodes, which there are probably at this point three, four, five years old, and, and a lot of them still hold up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, once it's out there, there's always benefit. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't envy folks. I, I think that the people that are doing media on, you know, more... JavaScript. Like, yeah, like like faster-moving faster moving targets, I don't envy them, and I think they're doing great work. Like, I, I have been kind of lazy in my choices of what to cover in that, like, I, I deliberately choose stuff that I know I'm not going to have to go and update in a year. Yeah, if I if you were doing some sort of regular like React or JavaScript uh, screencast, I would imagine that that would fossilize pretty quickly. Yeah. What kind of stuff did you find particularly beneficial when you were learning to be a developer? Were there works that things that you le- felt like you learned a lot from, or that inspired you to be a better developer and then become a developer educator? You know, thinking back. When I was first getting into development, everything was terrible. Like there, there isn't a lot that I can think of as far as books and other media that that I look back fondly on from my very first days learning to be a developer. Some of the things that sort of stand out though was like picking up the Camel book for the first time, which that's the classic book on Perl. That was sort of a, a revelation to me because it was the first fun programming book that I ever read. Yeah, it had a personality. It had a point of view. Uh, I mean, I was never a huge Perl programmer, but that book sold Perl hard yeah. and, and made it seem yeah, fun. Yeah, and then I felt like that kind of... So then I read the the book, The Pragmatic Programmer, I guess in around 2001 when it came out, and that was kind of a big deal for me as well because, again, you had um, a book with, with a decent personality and it wasn't snooty. It wasn't, it didn't seem like it came from an ivory tower, like a lot of the stuff that was around the shelves where I worked. And it was, you know, well, it was very pragmatic. There was a lot of stuff in there that kind of went against (laughs) the uh, orthodoxies of the time. And that kind of got me into that, just that whole community. You know, there was like an email list around it at the time of people that were applying the thinking from that book. There was that, you know, another of the, the early things that I really turned to a lot, really learned to, a lot from was WikiWiki, Ward Cunningham's original wiki, the, the, the wiki that created wikis. And that I spent just hours and hours going over that site, you know, reading the various postings from, from people about software design ideas. Yeah, Kent Beck and Ward Cunningham and all the people that were on there that eventually sort of morphed into the original XP. Right. Yeah, I spent some time on there too. We we um my I was a grad student at the time, but our our um research group was researching wikis as educational tools. And yeah, so as I spent a fair amount of time looking at that site. I was really really when I one of the first things that I remember that really hit me was Code Complete. Yes, which I read in a panic uh after finishing undergrad and about to go to grad school uh having gone from a, a liberal arts undergrad to a very technical grad school I was petrified that I actually really didn't know how to program and code complete more so than anything else all, all, there's all sorts of things that I do on a day-to-day basis that can get traced back to advice uh from that book 25 years ago because it was very nuts and bolts in a way that is there are very few develop very few programming books that really talk about like how do, when do you use an if statement? How do you 
layout loops. You know, when do you create a new method? It, it wasn't object-oriented. When do you create a new function? And it claimed to be data-backed. And even though I probably disagree with some of the things that he said now, like that was a huge that, – that book had a huge impact on me. Yeah, that book, that book introduced me to the concept of code construction, which was, I think, his term for – you know the decisions you make at the nitty gritty level of line by line and method by method, and that was actually a big inspiration for me when I wrote Confident Ruby. It was kind of between, inspirationally, it was between like Code Complete and Kent Beck's Small Talk Best Practice Patterns. Right, because that's the other book that talks about nitty gritty line by line stuff. Because there really aren't, there's surprisingly few, given that that like that's the, those are the decisions that people make all the time. So that that other book is Kent Beck's Small Talk Best Practice Patterns, which is comes at it from a very different angle, but is very very much about the the things that you do line by line and and patterns of creating constructor methods and creating accessor methods and uh, using blocks. And um, even though it's in small talk, it's still probably one of the five best Ruby books. Yes, absolutely. Uh, going. That's one of those books that I wish more people would read. Yeah. And confident Ruby has a lot of that same. I remember, I actually remember seeing you do the confident Ruby talk in, in what was actually a day that was a day that I remember a lot of things about, but that was in Kansas city at uh, Ruby Midwest, and I remember having a very strong, very similar reaction to it. That it was like, oh, this is a really, really, really good advice about doing day-to-day stuff in Ruby, and programming should be about joy. That was what you said. And I was like, I remember joy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> programming should be about joy. <laughs> right? So yeah, so that... that, that <laughs> I actually think about that a lot, and, and, and the confident Ruby. There's a whole uh, point of view about how code should be constructed that you should tell a story that I think about a lot in the code. Yes. I think you meant I should tell a story, <laughs> but, I, yeah. but yeah, the code, the code I should I tell a story. Did. It should, should tell, tell a coherent narrative. No, I have a story about that conference because that's the one where, where uncle Bob gave the, where Bob Martin gave the hexagonal rails talk and started off by criticizing everybody that had spoken earlier that oh, day. Yes. Including both of us, I think, actually. I have apparently blocked the memory of being criticized. I don't want to unblock that one. I think he criticized the rogues panel in general. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's great. It's fun. What kind of stuff have you read? Is there a programming book that you've read recently or or content that you have, uh, that you like learn from now? Like, what do you, what do you do to learn new things now? So my learning focus for the past couple of years has not been so much on programming directly. You know, the the pragmatic programmers famously said you should learn a new programming language every year. And I think that's great advice. But as I've gotten older and gone farther with having my own business, I've started to interpret it more liberally. So I'll consider like marketing a new programming language and dive into that. So a lot of the stuff that I've studied more recently has not been new programming languages. For me, that would be almost something to do for fun. Like I'd love to to spend more time learning programming languages, but I've realized that that's actually not the most high leverage thing that I can do with my time these days. So I've learned a lot of things of late, but a lot of it has to do more with like marketing and business strategy and copywriting and stuff like that. So how do you approach that? What are the resources like in those areas? Do books work? Do you need to actually, what's out what's there? out there? There's so much out there. I mean, you know, if, once you once you dive in, you realize that the the default for making money online is tell how other people how to make money online, and so there's a lot out there. 
In the gold rush, the people that made money were the people who sold pickaxes. Exactly. And it's hard for me to, off the top of my head, list resources. But I will say that when it comes to your marketing some kind of product or media online, the key word is content marketing. The, the positive spin on it is it's the modern practice of actually making yourself useful to people before they buy stuff from you, rather than just sort of plastering the web with ads. And there's a lot of information out there about content marketing, but probably like the, the site that's been talking about this for the longest time and has some of the best resources is Copyblogger. And you can kind of go there and get a lot of 101 stuff and also start to pick up on who are some of the people out there that are good resources because usually they've written something there or had a guest post there or something like that. And then you can start to branch out from there. Do you find it hard coming from a programming background to measure your success in things like marketing and business strategy? And I say this because I think I do. I think I, I have a sense of when I'm learning a programming language or a programming technique, I can see the results of that in a concrete way. And I, I find that kind of frustrating when I'm, I'm trying to learn how to market a podcast, just to throw an example out at random. Do you feel that? Uh, well, so yes and no. Like, I do because I'm not doing the things that I should be. Like, the thing is, measuring your success for online marketing is stupidly easy compared to measuring other things. Like, it's really hard to measure the goodness of a program in terms of code quality, because there are so many possible metrics we could apply to that. But there is basically one metric for marketing and it's online and it's conversions. It's who actually, you know, who sees your stuff out there somewhere and eventually sort of follow, follows the trail of breadcrumbs and clicks on a buy now button. The, my problem is that I just, I'm lazy and I often don't set up the analytics that I really should be. Um, but in theory, you actually can measure this stuff. You can, you can set up A-B tests and stuff like that and, and see like what you're doing that's working. Now, I do think that there's, that's probably not the only metric that matters because I also want to know like, okay, how many people am I pissing off with the way I'm marketing? And I try to keep that as near zero as possible. So, you know, I don't want to just optimize for nothing but conversions. I mean, so, I mean, I, I have self-published stuff. The podcast doesn't actually have conversions in the same way. And I have, I mean, literally no idea how to market this, which is, I think, clear. But I think that one of the things that is always hard for me is that first step of, like, asking for money for something. And I, how have you dealt with that? Does, it, does that make sense? Yeah, it's a gradual process of getting comfortable with that, I think. You know, I when I was first selling stuff online, I had a lot of people tell me that I was drastically underpricing my stuff. And I think a lot of that was just what I was comfortable with doing and, and looking at some of the higher price points and thinking I couldn't possibly ask for that much money. I mean, at, at some point, especially when you're in this particular niche, which is selling information products to professionals, professionals who whose time is very valuable, you have to realize that if the thing that they learn from your video or from your book saves them a day of work, then that might have saved, you know, several hundred dollars or more. If it saves a team a day of work, you know, you're talking about saving thousands of dollars. So you've got to realize that if you have something of value to offer, if you have something that they can actually apply and save time or effort or frustration, then that really is worth a lot of money. Yeah, this is a discussion I've had with a lot of people who self-publish stuff because I also have always habitually sort of underpriced 
the things that I self-publish. And I've had people tell me that they take it less seriously because it's cheap. That is absolutely a thing. Which is so, in some ways so disheartening. Cause, and and I, I always like the way that you wound up doing it for your uh, self-published stuff where you charged a couple – you had a price point and then you had a higher price point that was basically like the perk of this is that you give me more money. <laughs> And I did that with one product. I did that with Objects on Rails. Uh, I remember, and and also, but then you also have the postcard, like the the like loophole, which I think is an important part because I think that there are people who are in situations where the price point becomes an issue. So having a way that they can pay in time rather than in money. Uh, yeah, becomes a valuable part of building a community. I think around it. So I feel like I should explain that. So I have. Um, explicitly for confident Ruby, but really for most of the stuff I do, I have a policy that, that if somebody wants to write me a postcard, like a physical mail postcard and put it in the mail, I will send them a copy of it. And that came from, honestly, part of what that came from was realizing that, yeah, there are people that are in circumstances where they can't afford it or people that are just in countries where the exchange rate is terrible and $35 US do- in, in US dollars might be just some ridiculously unattainable expense, or there are lots of fees that get slapped onto online purchases or whatever. And like, I thought about, you know, what would it take to offer separate pricing for different regions and just, you know, pounded my head against the wall at the very thought of dealing with that. And so part of it is I, you know, I really like making it possible for, for people in any circumstance. And part of it is just laziness. Cause if I'm going to do that, I don't want to have to do it in a complicated way. And the easy way is send me a postcard and I'll send you a copy. And the wonderful thing about this is I have this just box full of postcards that I'm going to have to replace soon because it's getting too small for all the, all the postcards. And they're from all over the world and they're beautiful. And some of them are hand, hand drawn and they have the most wonderful things written on the backs of them. And I, I, you know, that's priceless. Yeah. So you recently came back to conference speaking for the first time in a while. Yes. With a talk about no code. Yes. Avoiding code. Avoiding code. Uh, so uh, in what context should we be avoiding code? Any context where the code that you're writing does not give you a lot of leverage on the problem that you're actually trying to solve. So for example? Well, my favorite example comes from my own experience, which is the Ruby Tapas site, which when I first kicked it off, I went with a hosted service because I needed to get it up and running fast. But the hosted service didn't really have a lot of features. And so I knew all along, I knew that eventually I wanted to replace it with something that was more flexible to supply all of the features that I wanted to give people and that people were asking for. For years, I worked in the background on a replacement for it. Every time I would get a day or two free, I would spend some time coding up some more features on this Ruby Tapas 2.0 code base that I was going to roll out someday. And it went really, really slowly. And I realized that there were a lot of things that I needed to handle, you know, beyond just handling subscriptions, which is a huge topic in its own right, because I promise you just like slapping on Stripe subscriptions, that is not like a a drop-in solution. There is so much you have to handle. Yeah. And Stripe subscriptions is better than some of the other ones. And there's still a ton of your own custom logic. You yeah. Need to throw about that, you know, but then you throw on top of that all kinds of, of, you know, all the content delivery, the, the streaming and the downloads 
and the making sure that the right people can see the right things and having a nice way to present the episode scripts and any other attachments and categorization and, and really good search and RSS feeds and handling corporate accounts and handling discounts and special events and blah, 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 forums. You know, and, and eventually I realized that, that this could, if I really decided to do this, it could easily become a full-time job just writing this content delivery system. And the result of that would be that Ruby Tapas, the show, would probably just become all about writing Ruby Tapas, the website, because that's all I'd be thinking about all the time. And that's not the show that I wanted to deliver. You know, I, I had to take a step back and think, okay, what is the actual change that I want to affect in the world with this? And the answer to that is I want to make Ruby programmers better at what they do, not better at writing Ruby Tapas, the website. And so I kind of did some rethinking and eventually came up with a new rule for myself, which is I will not write a single line of code to deliver this content. And so what did you do? Well, I turned to something that I had some experience from in the past, which is WordPress. And I just built the site. I rebuilt the site based on WordPress and a selection of premium plugins, which handle things like subscriptions and making sure the right people can see the right content and RSS feeds and sending out emails when content is updated and forums and all that stuff. So what's the general lesson here? How would you, how would you apply that to somebody in, in a more, in a, in a different developer position? Uh, the general lesson is you've got to maintain your perspective and you've got to, you've got to stay aware of what is the change that you're trying to affect in the world. And there's going to be some code probably Maybe there's going to be some code which is sort of at the core of affecting that change. And then there's going to be a lot of other code which is peripheral to that. This is, that's about like sending people emails and other peripheral concerns. And you also have to be aware of what's out there, what, what services are out there, what software is out there. But, you know, a lot of it though is just, and a lot of what I was talking about in that talk is mindset and attitude because I feel like a lot of what gets in the way of avoiding code, which really didn't need to be written in the first place, a lot of what gets in the way of that is just our attitude. Do you mean attitude? So there's a couple things. Attitude, first of all, that like, oh, I'm a developer, so I need to write my site? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's that's part of it. Or um, the attitude that your problem is a special problem and that the existing tools aren't going to cover it. So there's this idea that you're supposed to eat your own dog food, which means you should use the software you, that you write. But that doesn't mean you have to write all of the software that you use. Yeah, I think the the idea that, I mean, you know, at this point, there are a lot of people who have worked on a lot of hard problems, and especially things that are have very specific domain knowledge, like dealing with money, or a lot of the things that you talked about, you, know, you have entire companies in their own right that set up these kinds of things. And it's kind of crazy to think that your individual person or your small team is going to like be able to create more value than those existing. Yeah. And the, and the other attitude that you brought up about feeling like our problem is special is another big problem with avoiding code. Because I think a big problem that programmers have is they get very precious about their solutions they get or about their problems. They feel like, uh, or we feel like, you know, this problem is special. It is a unique snowflake. Uh, the workflow that we need to solve it looks exactly like this. 
or the file formats we need to use are exactly these or whatever. There's always some very special, very precious requirement that writes off whatever off-the-shelf solutions are out there. Right. And whereas maybe the better way to approach it is to like try and fi- try and isolate the specific stuff from the the common stuff. Yeah, and also like be flexible. You know, a lot of times it turns out that the the off the shelf software works in a different way because they've been working on that problem longer than you have and you don't realize that, you know, the issues with the workflow that you think is the right one. Right. And it actually comes up, you know, there's a lot of areas that I, like I'm familiar with in publishing, people come in and they try to solve. Publishing as a business has notorious inefficiencies if you look at it from the outside, but they're all there for a reason. And if you come in from the outside and think you're going to fix it, you're going to just spit in circles. Right. Uh, and I think similarly, like if you come to a problem and think that you have an easier way to do it than the people that have been doing it for a long time, like you, you might be right. It's not. It's not unheard of that that people really do improve these longstanding processes. But there's also a really good chance that there's a lot of complexity that you don't even see that existing tools are already set up to handle. Yeah. Well, and and as programmers, I think one of the things that we get precious about is not repeating ourselves and not repeating data. And that that's one of the things I see a lot. It's like, well, we can't use this off-the-shelf solution because that would mean duplicating some of our data. And, you know, I think that's something that we have to just be a little bit more flexible on because the gains of using something that is off-the-shelf often outweigh the losses of duplicating some data here and there. And also, it often turns out that it isn't real duplication. It isn't actual. There's true duplication and then there's incidental duplication which is like when something appears similar in form but actually it's it varies at a different rate on one side of the divide than it does on the other so for example it may seem like you're duplicating information with for example stripe but stripe's holding that information for a different purpose and is going to change it for different reasons right and and do different things with it yeah Uh, so they might optimize it in a different way or have access in a different way Uh, and that's perfectly fine Like, you know, one of the things that a lot of apps spend a lot of time on code-wise is sending emails to people. And I worked with someone recently on a problem that was basically making it possible to unsubscribe from the emails that the app was sending to people. And, you know, I mean, this is a solved problem. Like, you can can send your emails through something like SparkPost or, you know, any of a dozen other uh, email hosts. And they will supply the unsubscribe link and they will make sure that people get unsubscribed. And if your app tells them to send this email to somebody who's, who has clicked unsubscribe, it just won't go out. That's a start towards not writing so much code. But usually when you go that far, you still have background jobs that are sending out emails. They're just using an API instead of doing it you know, directly with SMTP or something. And you know, the issue there is you're still dealing with background jobs for one thing, and, and who enjoys debugging background jobs? Uh, but you're also, if your marketing department has a new engagement email that they'd like to try out, they have to come to you and say, hey, can we get a new mailing set up? And the developers are the bottleneck for that. But there's this next step you can take where services like Drip, you can actually push a ton of your metadata over to their side. You can associate various bits of metadata and update the metadata associated with an email address like 
you know, what products has this person bought or what have they, what buttons have they pushed or what point are they in, in completing their profile or something like that. And you can push that over and then your marketing people can just set up mailings in drip that, that trigger on different events or um, have all kinds of interesting automations around them. And they don't have to come to you anymore. Like you can just make sure that the right information is getting pushed over there and your marketing people, they don't have to come begging for a new background job to send a new, a new set of emails or new logic to decide when to send those emails. They can just do it. Right. So, so you're, you know, what you're doing here is you're giving your small team, you're, you're giving your small team more leverage by taking advantage of larger teams that have done other work. Exactly around the world. And, and yeah, I mean, if you're a small development team, you know, I work, I spend a lot of time on small development teams, being able to be clear eyed about what the value that your team is there to provide and what the value that other people can provide better. Like that's super important in delivering a complicated project. Yeah. And so part of it is just staying educated about what's out there now. I mean, I heard from someone recently who talked about how they had implemented their own feature flipper. And it seemed like, well, this is a trivial thing to do originally. Um, and they've discovered that the feature flipper itself, you know, this is code. This isn't code that's delivering value to the, to the customer. It's, it's code that's enabling them to switch features on and off as they develop them. But that feature flipper itself has sucked down a, a, a significant amount of development time. And what they've realized in retrospect is there are, feature flippers as a service out there where you just do a little tiny bit of integration into your code and you let the the service handle you know, what are the conditions for a user seeing this feature or not. And, you know, they, they realize that they would have saved a whole lot of development effort by using one of those. Now, feature flippers as a service is not a thing that has been around forever. You know, that's still relatively new. And so you have to keep your head up and, and see what is becoming commoditized now that wasn't commoditized before. Yeah, our teams have all just started using a tool that does gem upgrades as a service. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it scans your gem file, looks to see if there's an upgrade, like creates a pull request. You know, it, it notices a pull request and it creates a pull request and throws a pull request into your GitHub repo automatically mm-hmm. overnight. You know, that's a kind of thing that is like, that's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's relatively new. It's, 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 it's not exactly uh no code, but it's definitely time being automated outsourced mm-hmm. to a team that spent more time thinking about the complexities of it than you have. I think, yeah, I think that one of the things I take away from this is that there's a really good chance if you're doing some sort of complicated business problem that somebody else has tried to do it with more resources than you have. Right. And they, the, the fruits of that labor might be available to you. And then again, like it, this doesn't mean like you never do any work. It does mean, it means though that you need to be sort of clear headed about what the best use of your energy is Yeah, and not wheels are everywhere. Right. You know, and, and exactly, you know, and I do want to clearly disambiguate this from the idea of like writing, the simplest thing that could work or, you know, minimizing the number of lines of code you write to do something, you know, we can, that's something we can talk about. There's value in that, but you know, I'm really more interested in the choice to write that first line of code or not in order to implement a feature. Because once you write that first line of code, it's, it's, it's the seed around which a whole lot of future work can agglomerate. I think that's a word. And, (laughs) you know, and uh, it might not look like a lot now, but just like that feature flipper, you know, they discovered that their feature flipper itself needed more and more features over time and had bugs that needed to be fixed. 
And, you know, that choice to write the first line of something that is peripheral to what your purpose is, is it's a big decision because usually that's the beginning of a long sunk cost fallacy where you feel like we're, you know, we've already got this system in house. There's no reason for us to turn to off the shelf software for this. Yeah. I mean, and I have spent projects where, you know, clients came to us because the off the shelf software was not doing what they wanted, but they started with the off the shelf software. Like that's a, that, that is in some ways an easier path to go on. Right. And then you come out of that with a, with an understanding of, well, you know, we had this off the shelf solution and it actually didn't do these things that we really needed which is probably a better place to start than to start trying to build the stuff that's already common. So, uh, do where can people find you online? They can find me at my, actually my new site that I'm still kind of putting together, which is avdi.codes. They can find Ruby Tapas at rubytapas.com. They can find me on Twitter uh, at avdi, A-V-D-I. Great. Well, um, thanks for being on the show. It's been great to get the chance to talk to you, Avdi. I'm really, I'm really glad we got a chance to do this. Uh, and thanks. Noel, thanks so much for having me on. Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. I'm at Noel Rapp on Twitter, and TableXI is at TableXI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rap. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. Please send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we still have job openings uh, open on our website even as I record this. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Right.